1: Welcome to the New Books Network. The war between Israel and Hamas has divided friends and families around the world, raising difficult questions about causes, responsibility, and accountability. Divisions within the Jewish population over these issues in the United States and elsewhere seem as frequent as they are among the broader population, if not more so. How do Jews think of themselves and their political commitments in the aftermath of the Hamas attacks of October 7th? What about Israel's response, which is provoking protests and opposition from the streets of Israel to the halls of the State Department? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. And we're fortunate to have with us today Jody Rudoren, who's editor in chief of The Forward. Uh, and has been since September 2019. She's just, she's a veteran journalist who spent more than two decades at the New York Times, including ne- nearly four years as its Jerusalem bureau chief. She's also appeared on CNN, MSNBC, and other news outlets to comment on the Israel-Hamas war. And as fate would have it, she also lives in the same New- North Jersey town where I live. So it's great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us today, Jody Rudoran. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks a lot. So let's start with a very basic question. What happened on October 7th, 2023 that unleashed the dogs of war? And what do you think was the was Hamas's aim on that brutal day?
2: You know, it, it's interesting, John. I wrote a column a couple of days afterwards that said everything I thought I knew about Israel and Gaza was wrong. And during the time that I covered the conflict intensively for the New York Times and the decade since then, you know we've been in this kind of cyclical situation um, with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and particularly with Israel and Hamas and other armed groups in Gaza. We've seen this is now the fifth war between Israel and the armed groups in Gaza starting in 2008 and 2009. And the thing is though, this is totally different even as it's rooted in in that pattern. And the reason is because the, for two two real reasons about October 7th. The first is the breaching of the fence between Israel and Gaza is a paradigm shattering event. Um, It changes Israel's own, Israel's and Israelis' understanding of their, relationship with their neighbors, of the threat from their direct neighbors, of the proximate threat, and of the, I guess in this case, uselessness of the the barriers they had thought that they had put up, they thinking they would um, contain those threats. And then the scale, scope, and sheer barbarism of that attack also was something that nobody Not anybody in Israel, not anybody in the Arab world, not anybody who watches this conflict really thought would be possible or would happen. Um, In terms of why did Hamas do that, I mean, the best uh, reporting I've seen on that is by my former colleagues, Ben Hubbard and Riyabi Habib in the New York Times, and they did extensive interviews after the attack with Hamas leadership, who essentially described it as a kind of suicide mission for the movement, essentially said they they knew that doing something of this scope and scale would unleash a response that could kind of end their own lives, but also, you know, the ability for Hamas to function anymore, certainly as a political entity, but also as a, as a militant or armed group, terrorist group, um, and they did it anyway because that's how desperate uh their situation had become or how dysfunctional they are or all of those things together. So um I, but I think that the key thing that we all have been grappling with I think for 6 weeks or 7 weeks now really is that this thing we thought we understood it has the same roots we understood but it's its condition had substantially and dangerously changed in ways that we missed, we did not really understand.
1: Right. So, I mean, I guess I've always had the sense that, you know, this was the the brutality was intentional. I mean, if we think of Clausewitz and this is war war as a continuation of politics by other means, this is an attempt to elicit a certain response from Israel. And of course, that has been you know, large scale bombardment of Gaza. So I'm sort of wondering what you think about this uh, analogy that's been drawn between uh, our 9-11 and October 7th, and what kind of response, you know, has come from both the government, which I think is rather clear, but perhaps less clear is what, you know, the population in Israel is thinking.
2: Well, I I, first before we get to the 9-11 analogy, I just want to pick up on something that you said about the brutality, because I think that um, the the motivation to breach the fence and enter Israel and even the idea of killing a lot of Israelis do seem to me to be, I guess, explainable within the context of the movement and its goals and the situation. But the brutality that we have seen, and I watched the you know forty-five minutes or so, a uh, film that the IDF put together of the of the images that Hamas themselves filmed on their own GoPros, and also that security footage, the brutality that we see there of the way, and, and what we also know from other sources about rape and beheading, and the 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 filming of one grandmother's. Um, killing and posting on our own social media network, the attempt to cut off the head of a, I think it was a Thai worker with a garden hoe. Those things are not explainable, in my view, by anything. They are barbaric and beyond really sort of comprehension. So I do think, and and that, and we did not see that on nine eleven. I guess it's worth saying, right? I mean, obviously they chose a different method on nine eleven. You don't, you don't, you know, brutally abuse children when you fly a plane into a building um so but I do think it's worth calling out that that particular brutality is is a is a thing that happened on October 7th that we shouldn't forget um in terms of the comparison though look I guess I would say two things one is I think similar to the way that Hamas had to know what would happen if it did this large scale attack on Israel. It knows its enemy very, very well. Similarly, I think, you know, Al Qaeda might not have known exactly what the U.S. response would be because nothing like this had ever happened before, but certainly did it knowing that there would be a massive response and that it could um, threaten their very existence, but that the, I guess, message or impact was in in their warped minds worth it. I think the other way that people talk about this as Israel's 9-11 has to do with the impact on the society, as you uh, referenced. And, you know, first of all, the scale of the loss is much larger in terms of proportion to the, to the um, population than 9-11, maybe 20 times the size, I think. Um, And there's the hostages who remain in captivity and who, you know, the, the sort of tortured experience for those families and everyone around them in Israel of continuing to kind of live through that pain every day and the brutality. So I would say, you know, the the both the scope and the intensity of the losses is probably more significant on the tiny interconnected society of Israeli Jews in particular than, than what happened. Maybe it's comparable to New York on 9-11. But I think I, I do think one thing that is just almost exactly the same is for those of us who lived through 9-11, it was, it was paradigm shattering, right? We certainly did not imagine that anything like that could happen. For a while, we thought there were going to be similar attacks on American landmarks like the Golden Great Bridge or the Sears Tower or uh, Ellis Island or the Mall of America. I was covering the Midwest at the time, and we were like vigilantly waiting for someone to hit the mall of America. And, you know, so many things that we now take for granted, like security at the airport and things like that, are we didn't, you know, we're totally changed. So our perception of our own security was pretty radically changed by 9-11. We, of course, continue to be very much buffered by two big oceans, and Israel is not buffered by anything except for these the fence that failed it. So It's different,
1: but similar. So I know it's been a while since you were Times Bureau Chief in uh, Jerusalem, but uh, I'm sure you have lots of great contacts there. And, you know, it's very hard to get a sense of exactly how people are responding. On the one hand, there seems to be a lot of sense of existential crisis on both sides of the ethnic divide. And, uh, you know, there's also plenty of Israelis who seem to be very critical of the policy that the Israeli government government has taken, of course, going back to the uh, business about the judicial reform, but continuing in terms of the policy towards Gaza. Uh, So I wonder how you assess, you know, what people are feeling over there.
2: Um, Yeah. So I'm headed over there myself in about a week. So I'll have a better answer for you when I'm not on this podcast, but you can read about it in the foreword. But look, I I would say um, the people I'm talking to and hearing from pretty much every day, the thing that is most common is just a a feeling of anguish, you know, deep pain, fear, anger. Um, There is both. uh, It's a lot of things at once. I mean, it is an incredible sense of loss, loss of like everybody I know knows people who were killed on October 7th, people who were kidnapped on October 7th, and people who are deployed right now. Everybody knows one or more of each category. So everybody is like really in it in a way that is a little hard to understand when you live in a big country like America. Number two, absolutely people's, you know, just as I wrote, everything I thought I knew was wrong. I mean, people's sense of, how this works, how they are meant to interact with Gaza and Palestinians, what could possibly happen in the future, the things they thought they were pretty clear on now feel shaken and uneasy. Um, People in Israel have, I think, wrongly been thinking they could ignore the Palestinian question for a number of years. For the last five difficult election cycles, it has not been a prominent issue um they clearly know that is not the case now and i think people are struggling a little bit to figure out what a what a credible end game could possibly be to this situation and how they're meant to feel they they thought the existential threat was only the idea of iranian nuclear weapons and they now see you know if there is terrorism growing in the west bank and gaza that can do this kind of damage, then their imagining of what a life in Israel was gonna be like has is no longer you know, really possible. So things are really, really pained and confused. There is also alongside all of that, a sense of resolve and a sense of unity um, as happens generally in war. As I said, everybody has people on the front lines. So there is some idea of standing behind that. And there is a lot of of unity and communal support for particularly the hostage families, uh, but also the families who are mourning people who were killed on, on um, 10-7. And I guess the last thing is, um, as you mentioned, this came after a year of the most divided open political rebellion that the country has seen in its history, a year of protests of the most right-wing government in Israel's history, and those fissures and open debate about the country's future and the priorities have not gone away. They have been set aside um, somewhat. You know, many of the leaders of the protest movement, the democracy movement, sprang into action on on October 7th and October 8th and October 9th and have have now created this kind of volunteer civil command. Um, They are leading the country in a way, in a very organic and day-to-day kind of way. Um, And I just edited this morning uh, a personal essay by a Jerusalemite who went on Saturday night to what used to be called a protest and now is called a rally, um, and it used to be shouting about democracy and judicial reform, and it's now quieter and about supporting the families of the hostages and those in mourning. But it it contains within it a sense of, you know, okay, Netanyahu, finish this war, but we are not, you know, going to just let the country continue as it was before. So we'll see what happens um, when the when the fighting quiets, right.
1: So uh, turning away now from, you know, the mood in Israel, I'm curious about, you know, what you observe in the United States. I mean, I think there's a sort of been a sense in the protests that some people, some progressive Jews, perhaps in particular, have seen, you know, what they thought of as their allies turn out not to be exactly on the same page when Israelis are the victims. And I wonder, you know, do you see that as a kind of major split? I mean, it's been discussed in The New York Times that people like uh, Jamal Bowman or uh, Richie Torres are on one side of, uh, you know, this issue and AOC is on another. I mean, how do you assess what's going on basically on the you know American left?
2: Yeah, I think just as there was an intelligence failure by Israel to not understand the scope and scale of Hamas's capabilities and to not see this particular plan being formed. Similarly, I think that uh, American Jews, progressive American Jews understood that um, the the question of Israel on the left um, in the sort of progressive movement, the movement that, you know, around Black Lives Matter and um, the disc- and also the discourse around Israel on American college campuses, in particular, I think we all knew that those that the the relationships between liberal Zionists and the rest of that kind of progressive coalition, and that the discourse around had had frayed or was was fraught around the question of Israel, and that the discourse on college campuses had kind of devolved um, in a way that was uh, unsettling for those believe that israel has a right to exist as a democratic and jewish state um we had no idea though um how much those things were true how broad the questions of israel's right to exist were among progressives and on college campuses and how kind of virulent the the um the the passions were and how easily they would bleed into clearly open anti-semitism that we have seen on particularly on um, American college campuses so I think we kind of knew the roots of this we kind of understood it was going on and getting tougher and tougher but I don't I think we've all been surprised and so that's left a lot of Jews in places like Montclair or on university campuses like Yale where I went or you know, in coastal enclaves or elite institutions, it has left a lot of American Jews who do believe that Israel has the right to exist as a Jewish state, but who also very much want to see uh, Palestinian national liberation and a Palestinian state and a peace, most importantly, a peace. It has left a lot of people like that feeling quite isolated and not sure who their friends and allies really are.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
1: So I want to get into the possible solutions or outcomes that may come out of this but I first want to ask you know what do you think explains that I mean a lot of this is attributed to a generational uh divide a generational transformation and it's not hard to imagine that you know for younger people the holocaust let's say or apartheid in south uh, the the reality of apartheid in south Africa or in the southern united states Uh, of an earlier day, you know, are sort of abstract historically. And therefore, Israel is perceived in a kind of way that may not be entirely the way people, let's say, of our age might see the situation.
2: Yeah, I think that I think I, I guess I would put it into three big buckets. The first is that the, you know, passage of time since the Holocaust and the not just slight, but really extreme kind of prosperity and success for of Jews here in America and in other places has made the idea of Jews needing a safe haven, Jews needing a nation state, is not a, a present reality for, for people younger than 40 or so. It just doesn't seem like, what? Why would they need that? So um, I think that moment in time when the urgency of it was pretty clear to everybody has certainly faded. So that's one. The second is that uh this thing this this occupation of the of Jerusalem, East Jerusalem and the West Bank that began in 1967 as a temporary occupation, you know under international law until much time you know a settlement could be worked out. it doesn't feel very temporary more than 50 years later. and so again, all those folks younger than me who look at this and think, you know, What's going on there? What is Israel doing? They don't seem to be doing what they said they were going to do about it being either temporary as an occupation or about pushing forward a two state solution. They instead are building and expanding settlements, and there's a lot of violence between settlers and Palestinians and between the army and Palestinians. So I think any reasonable person would look at that and think "Hmm, that doesn't seem to be temporary or kind of really livable with. And if you already don't think, you need a nation state, you really want to see a state that, you know, that uh, supports human rights for all its residents and all the all of its neighbors. So you start to think those two things aren't really, uh, that's two good reasons why Israel shouldn't necessarily have right to keep going or needs to keep going the way it is. And then the third factor, which I feel like I knew about before, but I, I didn't understand its power until now, which is, it's sort of the, the, framing of the way the sort of worldview of the um of the progressive left of the black lives matter and movement this this sort of framing of of um so many things in this kind of this idea of like anti-colonialism as connected to anti-racism and um the connection the intersectionality the sort of philosophy of intersectionality So what we've seen happen since October 7th in a more clear way than before then is the um, projection of that framing, which I think is really about the U.S. and the problems we have in the U.S. with our own history um, towards Native Americans and towards um, slavery and, and Black people in general. It's a projection of those things onto this conflict. They don't make sense, frankly, on this conflict. I mean, you can't, half of, Israel's population is not European or white. So the idea of condemning it as a white European colonial en- on, on, uh, enterprise seems really off. Also, it's very difficult to be colonial in a land that you have ancient history in. And also the the most of the residents, many of the residents of Israel were, of course, refugees from Arab lands or from Europe when the state was founded or before the state was founded. So, this framework doesn't really fit the situation. So one of the things we see though, is this kind of hegemonic um, focus on that framework towards every political issue. How does this kind of class, race, intersectional dynamic apply to everything? And I think we we now see that, I would now say that that is a third factor of people uh, feeling alienated from the idea of Israel as a nation state of the Jewish people. So it's like distance from the Holocaust, length of the occupation, and this kind of hegemonic view of the world um, that feels off in this situation, but is nonetheless being applied to it.
1: Right, I mean, your interpretation basically lines up with mine. I'm sort of curious though, you know, what you would say about the conduct uh, of the IDF in Gaza. Um, on the one hand, it appears, it seems to be the case that Hamas is embedded among a civilian population. Therefore, making war crimes essentially inevitable, and the IDF is saying we're doing everything we possibly can to, you know, avoid civilian casualties. Uh, so it's a Gordian knot kind of situation. It seems yeah, to me. I mean, I, think what's, uh,
2: I mean, look, I've spent a lot of time in Gaza. I covered two wars there that were, thankfully, much uh, narrower and less um, brutal than this one although the 2014 war was 51 days of bombing and ground invasion. Um, I've also spent a lot of time there, not during wartime, um, in people's homes and writing about their struggle um, and their struggles also with Hamas, by the way. So it is incredibly painful to watch Gaza being destroyed and to watch so much death happening there. And I think it's painful for anybody who you know has eyes and a heart um i think i you know in terms of I, I, it is also true that um the way hamas operates makes you know it very difficult to avoid civ- civilian cal- casualties or even to limit them i guess i will say two things about it more which is i keep saying two things this is my thing but anyway one is that the specific, I know you know this, but just for your audience, John, the specific international law on proportionality relates uh, or on collateral damage or civilian casualties, is it, the specifics are that each strike, each of what have now been, I think, 15,000 airstrikes, but each act of war there should be an evaluation of whether the civilian casualties were proportional in that strike to the importance of the target for the military objective. So we have no idea. We have no there's no nobody has any way of the evalu- The question is not, is the total number of Palestinians killed in Gaza reasonable? as a retaliation for the total number of people killed in Israel. That is not how international law works. It is about the proportionality of of casualties and collateral damage to a specific strike based on the specific targeting. So it'll take many months and um, expert analysis to figure figure that out. And Israel should be held accountable for every single strike and whether um, it adhered to the laws of war um, in that particular strike. Absolutely. And I have no doubt that uh there will be some instances where it will be if not clear really feel strongly that there was more more damage than needed to be done the and the you know look the the stated goal of rooting out hamas from gaza is so and rescuing 200 hostages is so ambitious that um it certainly requires if if it's a reasonable goal um a a lot of damage and a lot of bombing. I think, I think the thing that's tricky that I find hard to sort of get my own head around, right, is that it's, it's like a reasonable response to what happened on October 7th to think we must root out Gaza from, excuse me, we must root out Hamas from Gaza. And it's unrealistic, like it can't work. So what do you do with that? Um, What's not okay, right? It's not okay for Israel to be vengeful and to respond to use its significant military might compared to its enemies um, to just respond in as harsh a way possible because it's so hurt that's not okay but it's it is again not unreasonable to say we should Israel wants to kill every Hamas commander, every Hamas fighter and take out every tunnel and every ammunition store and every training facility. I mean, that makes some sense, given what happened. But but it's it's so brutal and so horrible to watch. I don't know. It you know, it's it's all those things at once is how I feel.
1: Right. It's an extremely difficult situation to be in. At the same time, I mean, it seems to me that, you know, Israel will, uh, without question, win militarily. But that's not necessarily how this war will be won or lost, if that's the right Right. metric to use.
2: (laughs) Sometimes I think American Jews, Israeli Jews, forget. (laughs) The only way Israel and the Jewish people kind of win, and I would use finger quotes if we weren't on a podcast, is if the conflict with the Palestinians is resolved. As long as this conflict is unresolved, Israel's ability to maintain itself as a Jewish state is compromised, threatened, not realistic. There is no, in my view, um, the status quo is not sustainable. Um, The reason you hear more and more advocates for the Palestinians talking about a one-state solution is because it's... Palestine it is not a Jewish state and so anyone who cares about Israel being a Jewish and democratic state has to be focused on what would end the conflict and the fact that the Palestinians have been not good partners to Israel to working that out it's not irrelevant but it's kind of a side issue because it is it is Israel's um need to solve the conflict Uh, However, they need to solve it. It has to be solved or they won't survive.
1: Well, I couldn't agree more. And I guess one of the things that has surprised me, at least, is the fact that the whole conflict seems to have revivified discussion of a two state solution. now. The two-state solution may be as unappealing to some people right now as a one-state solution, whatever. But I mean, the point is that, as you say, some sort of political resolution is the only way to resolve this. And I wonder, you know, what's your sense of the bubbling up of this kind of discussion or is is it just too soon to tell?
2: Um, Yes, I suppose, is the real answer. All those things. But look, there are plenty of examples in history, and you can cite them much better than I can in which a crisis, a devastating setback, a horrible turn of events yielded to something that people would eventually describe as progress, right? Like there is, you know, crises are also catalyzers of change sometimes, Um, sometimes they are catalyzers of what we describe as, you know, regress, right? Of things getting just worse and worse and worse. But there's, there's not a few examples. There's a bunch of examples of where um, something terrible happens and it creates space for something that looks like progress. So I think it's not insane to think that could happen here. Um, but I don't see any path really towards it yet. I think, um, I mean, I did an event yesterday where somebody asked this question where they they asked about what's the credible end game and can we get journalists to focus more on what people see as the credible end game and i'm planning on taking that question with me to jerusalem next week and asking people about it i i think he's right you know we have got to start talking about uh what is the credible end game for this war and then for the whole conflict but um but you know it it has felt a bit soon i guess
1: yes well it's i mean clearly There's a lot of talk about the idea that nobody has a path, nobody has a plan, uh, and that everything will be put off until after the war. But that's, in a way, not the way wars really work either. So hopefully somebody's thinking about this in Qatar or in some place that we're not necessarily paying attention to.
2: Yeah, I would say Uh, the the two things that people have said, the two things that the most powerful people in the game have said, right? So Netanyahu has said, that Israel has to maintain functional security control over Gaza for the foreseeable future. And Joe Biden has basically said the Palestinian Authority needs to be in charge of Gaza. And um, neither of those two things feels realistic. Although if they were done together, there might actually be something possible there. But so many things need to happen. And, and, you know, Joe Biden is one of the people that can make them happen in order for the Palestinians to step up in a responsible way, supported by the Arab world and Washington and Europe, to be a credible alternative for Palestinian leadership towards sovereignty and to be engaged in a conversation about what Israeli security needs look like and how they can be met. I mean, we are so far from even setting that table for that conversation that it feels kind of mind boggling. But that is essentially where someone has to lead us to get is to a table that is about, you know, a, a freedom and liberation for the Palestinian people that includes security for both them and for Israel, they, you know, Palestinians also need their security uh, to be assured. And that is not done by Israeli military control of their territory. I mean, that's sort of obvious.
1: Well, I look forward to seeing that table set. Uh, and in the meantime, I look forward to seeing violence come to an end as soon as possible. And uh, I want to thank you so much for having this conversation with us today. Uh, I want to thank Jody Rudoran for her uh, insights into Israel, the Hamas conflict, uh, and uh, Jewish responses to it. Look for us on the New Books Network, and remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Osvaldo Mena for his technical assistance, as well as to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song, International Horizons, as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons.